with this bigger system with more connection, we actually have more niches, more falsification. For everything that gets streamlined, we have a thousand other things where it's changed into a giant spectrum of options. Hey, humans! Welcome to Demystifying Science, the most distant and far-reaching broadcast in the infosphere. Today, we sat down with Isaac Arthur. By day, he's a dutiful civil servant who works on the voting infrastructure in his home state of Ohio. And by night, he's the host of a regular YouTube series on science and futurism, which you can find linked in the description. He's released more than 300 videos, all of which are incredibly detailed, vividly beautiful, and well thought out. Each video manages a wide-angle perspective on questions that span everything from existential threat to cyborgs to the inner workings of advanced civilizations like ours. They're imaginative, technical essays that harken back to the era of print sci-fi magazines, but add a distinctly modern layer with CG animations, illustrations, and data visualizations. It's an astounding body of work that has managed to escape pollution by advertising or self-aggrandizing pomp. Talking with the man himself left us with a whirlwind of fresh ideas. Unlike many humans we've met, Isaac is surprisingly optimistic. His fisheye lens perspective on the human experience is informed by the repetitious nature of history. And it allows him to nurture the feeling that humans might actually be on the right track, even though things aren't perfect yet. In his vision of an achievable future, he imagines that humans can one day play the role of responsible techno-caretakers of the wider biome. They might one day act as gardeners, transplanting the most beautiful aspects of life on Earth throughout the solar system, interstellar space, and beyond. Overall, Isaac was a really fun human to speak with, and has no shortage of ideas about the myriad possible ways that the future could unfold for humans. Mm-hmm. So, enjoy the conversation. Remember to subscribe and like so we can bring you all the best guests in the future. And check out Isaac's show. Take Do care, it. humans. Bye. Well, hello. Hello. So you're a futurist. So I am. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it's kind of a bit of a loose term. Generally speaking, you would say uh, it's it's kind of like being the modern equivalent of a serial oracle. You hope to be right 51% of the time. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of future ahead of us, and we try to make some decent guesses as to what we'll be seeing in the future. And how do you make your guesses? Uh, where possible, we look at the past as much as we can to give us some idea of what might happen. And we try to look at the emerging technology and just ask ourselves, if we change this variable with civilization right now, with this new technology, how is this likely to affect us? Or in a broader sense, if we have this technology that lets us do something, knowing people, how are we likely to employ it? So we can never ask too specifically, but if we said, well, the price of power comes down to a tenth of what it is now, what's that going to affect economically? What's that going to change in the day-to-day -day lifestyle? And is this, is, is this the royal we? Hmm? Is this the royal we? Uh, well, there was actually quite a few people who walked out on the show with us, but uh, speaking of futurists in general, I think that's what most of them try to do. Uh, with our team here, uh, we start off as a one-man show, but these days a lot of volunteers who give us a hand, and uh, I think that's generally what we try to aim to do is just kind of look at the science, the technology, see what's emerging, and uh, 
guess as to what the future is going to be like. And I think that's what most futurists try to do too. Who is your audience for the most part? Well, they're all over the place on, uh, I would say, every continent, but I don't know if any launches in Antarctica. Maybe someone does in Mokmodo. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about a half a million subscribers these days, or 600,000, and a lot of other folks who aren't subscribed or watch to, and uh, they run the gamut uh, demographically. But I think the thing that's probably most common is everyone likes the science aspect of it, and a lot of them are into science fiction, too. We do try to play to that kind of theme and flavor, because so often with science fiction, we get a first good look at what the future might be like, or at least we get the questions we should be asking. So these are mostly people in the general public on earth, right? You're not advising uh, decision makers and policymakers and things like that directly, right? They probably could Most be. of the audience are regular folks. Uh, sometimes there's folks who work for this or that company or, you know, this or that state legislature or government legislature, things like that. So as the show is going on, a lot of times we do actually have occasion to talk to a lot of uh, folks who have interesting positions in life. That's pretty cool. So how did you get started doing this? Um, I mean, I guess I've always had a very heavy interest in both science and, and science fiction for that matter, too. Um, I studied physics when I was in college, um, and that gave me the basic grounding scientifically. Stuck around for grad school for a while, then left for the military for uh, a war we were having at the time. And uh, when I came back, I got involved in government local affairs and, and just uh, policy in general. And I kind of missed the science of it, so I hung around with a lot of uh, boards that were talking science or science fiction. And I often got asked science questions by this or that writer. And I got so tired of repeating the answers that I decided, hey, let's let's try just putting them all out in one, you know, essay or video. And I put it up on YouTube and uh, uh, it, it emerged into a show. Well done. Indeed. So what is your time working on policy? How has that crossed over with your studies of science fiction? And what have you learned about what we might expect for humans to develop in their future as they move out. I guess the interesting thing about working in in policy is that you begin to find out that nothing is ever as simple as you're expecting to be. Mm. Um, We can see the forced order kind of guesses of of what might happen with something, but it's all the little secondary things that you don't think about, black swan type events, and then just all the... Sometimes the future seems so obvious from a given piece of technology or a given advancement, but when you start picking away at it, you begin to see that that is often not the case, much as with policies that people might think are a good idea for this or that. And then when they actually start trying to implement them, a million little problems or better alternatives pop up. So that gives us a little bit of an advantage of seeing some of those second order effects or problems that might pop up, but it also tells us over and over again that you can only predict the future to about that much. So... <laughs> what are some examples of this that you've sort of gone down the road of thinking that it's a simple solution and then found great difficulty when implementing it? Hmm. Well, um, I'll give you an example. We would say that if tomorrow we invented something like fusion power, that that would be you know vast energy abundance. Um, and people would say, well, that's much cheaper now. But it's very easy to forget that so much of the power system, the power grid is you know, the, the cost we spend on energy is all those electric wires, all those people maintaining them. And those don't get one penny cheaper. On the other hand, some technology like solar power, um, that's a very location specific thing, but might not need so much of that grid and thus might actually turn out to be cheaper in some cases. So, but what you could have happening is say we had a bit of a boom in solar technology that might lead to a big boom in people investing and in researching in better, cheaper batteries. 
alternatively, something like fusion suddenly taking off might completely dampen out that solo industry. Uh, it might completely dampen out that uh, battery interest too. You might suddenly see people mass manufacturing gasoline. So just not even whether or not you get these technologies, but what order and timeline you get them in could be the difference between whether we're using electric cars in 50 years or gasoline cars in 50 years, even though both might in that case be renewable and carbon neutral because you're literally making your gasoline by sucking carbon dioxide and water out of the air. So very different styles of technology, minimal things. But then you have all the other effects that can go along with that. You know, we say, whatever happened to the milkman? Well, there's so many jobs get replaced by automation. And then you start to see what new sectors the economy might develop or be impacted by that. And what resistance this or that, you know, sector or uh, governmental regulation might pop up to an emerging technology because of that. So this is interesting that you mentioned this question of automation. Mm-hmm. Humans are facing down a pretty significant shift in work and production. And it's starting to happen right now, but no one's quite sure of where it's going to end. Do you have a sense of where this is headed for humans? There's a few ways you can go that, and one of the keys to keep in mind with automation is that Automation is not like the early robots of science fiction where it was either non-automated at all, purely mechanical and manual, or something that's basically a human-level intelligence like the androids we'd often see in in early sci-fi. There was a lot of ranges in between. If you start to make things that can do a given job, that frees other people up for new work, assuming there is some sort of work applied to be had. Uh, At the same time, you also increase the overall standard of living. On the flip side of that, though, if your machines get small enough, they can start doing human tasks. And that's a big worry for people. But one has to kind of keep in mind with that there are certain tasks they can't really do unless they are essentially human. Mm. And once they are essentially human, it's not automated anymore. You know, a very small artificial intelligence probe is not an unmanned probe. It's just not a human probe. It's got a person on board. So that could become your new clientele and base. And I think in many cases, what we'll see is at a certain point, when you have all those people available and they have need for both an income and a purpose in life, that there will be certain tasks, but we just don't choose to automate them because it has no net real benefit to civilization. But that's still a pretty long way off. And there will be a lot of trying to fine tune that for minimum disruption and best gain. So it's going to be one of those big challenges we'll be facing in the next couple of generations. And what is the impact on all of this automation for humans getting resources, right? Because you guys have jobs right now where you get paid for services. Sure. Uh, those jobs are not the jobs we had a century ago or two centuries ago. Two centuries ago, 90% of the population uh, grew on a farm and raised a little bit more food than they could eat themselves and sold that for certain trade goods. The 10% of the population that was specialist in some fashion. Three centuries um, ago, there weren't even jobs at all, it seems like. Well, in some ways, yeah. They, it really wasn't a job. It was a complete lifestyle and one you were almost born into, even in places where there was not a caste system, which has been fairly common throughout human history. Um, hmm. Now, those are still jobs, but a lot of what we think of as our modern concept of job, that's a bit of a modern flavor. You know, This was what people did from daybreak to dawn or whatever it was. It was just what they did. And uh, that's not what it is like these days. And we forget sometimes that that changes our orientation on these things a lot. Even concepts like money, which are very through time, 
we use money for pretty much every transaction these days. In the past, it was really only used for relatively large transactions at non-local level. Uh, everything else was kind of bottle trade favors, not even this for that, but I need X, you supply X, I'll get you something to, to pay you for that. Uh, whether it was a little bit of my time uh, working on your field or farm, or whether it was a particular amount of goods, or it could be coins, but for the most part, they won't trade them. Nowadays, it's become the completely fungible asset we have now. Um, but that can shift with time. More resources in general means somebody has to use those resources. So we worry about everyone becoming unemployed, but when we should be worried about that too, because even if everybody's got all they need in terms of food, uh, water, things like that, that does not necessarily mean that they are you know, feeling well because they might not have a purpose. So a lot of times we talk about a post-scarcity society, one that's so automated that everybody has everything they need. Uh, we have to say, well, what do they need? And we were told to things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, as an example of what that would be. And the bottom line are those things that we usually associate with post-scarcity, food, water, sleep, all these basic physiological needs are satisfied easily, not necessarily without any effort at all, but easily. They don't really generate much anxiety of getting them. Then you have those next high levels, things like friendship, things like finding a made a partner, a sense of purpose in life, self-actualization, other levels of the Maslow hierarchy pyramid of needs. And some of those are not solved by having vastly more resources. Some cannot be solved by having an infant's resources even. And we don't seem to live in a universe that has infinite resources. But other ones, for instance, if you have problems finding friends in your local community of 100 people you grew up around, now with the internet, you might find it much easier to find people who share your more abstract interests or who put a value on something that you do that most people don't necessarily do so. You know, if you're a local community, nobody cares about your great love of... Uh, growing the best orchid, orchid ever in your garden, there are a million people out on this planet somewhere who are going to say that's the coolest thing ever. And so you get that satisfaction going on. So it will be a big challenge to find purposes for people in life, but that is fundamentally what we're hoping the automation will help us with too, is it removes day-to-day -day jobs, but hopefully allows people to replace them with what is best aligned to make them more of, in, in, in loose terms themselves, what they really are aspiring to be. So how do you imagine that folks on Earth are able to get basic services like, or basic goods like food and shelter if they're not earning because automation has replaced their jobs? Well, there's no assumption necessarily that they're not earning. Uh, and there's many ways to be earning funds. We do not have to assume a post-scarcity economy is a Star Trek-style one in which there's no money. Uh, there may be or there may not be. There may return to more of the other style that we've often had in the past where money was only used for major transactions, uh, whereas bottle favors, you know, other things like that were used at the local level. Um, and it's not necessarily post-scarcity in all things. For instance, we say, well, how do you expect people to get AR if they don't have a job? <laughs> well, you seem to get AR just fine right now. Uh, how do you get water without a job? Well, obviously you got a water bill to your house, but in general, water is not something people are finding short of in, in most places these days. So certain things will probably get to the point where they are either freely available or so cheap that it's really not an issue. As to how they find an income, as with everything else, there has to be a reason why they're getting it from the rest of the civilization around them. They might own stocks. You might, for instance, say, well, we're going to have everybody in the country own one millionth of a share of this new power system, and that's your share that you get income off of. I don't know. Or you might say, well, 
here are the list of tubs and tasks we have available, and you can go and do them. And uh, you know, you will earn funds that way. Or you might say, you know, we've got so much production that all these very basic needs, it's like air and water. We'll just provide them, and uh, it's just not even worth our time to try to set an economy up around those, as we essentially do for air or water. We don't charge for these, really, uh, or by amount, anyway. Other things we might still need an economy for those, or we might use the economy even for those basic needs. The idea isn't so much of how are they getting them in terms of are they getting them capitalistically, socialistically, communistically, egalitarian, whichever it may be. It's the idea that regardless of the system, they are so easily provided that it doesn't matter because it's either something that would cost you a penny in the capitalist system or it's something that's just freely available like a public library might be. It's just they are. It's a minimal expansion of the civilization to give them to people. That's ideally what a post-scarcity is for any given specific need. And you're never going to have it across the board. Some of those things are unique needs, right? If your personal life goal is to be the best seller of all time, we can't provide that except by deception. We could maybe set you up in a virtual world where that was the case or um, you know, brainwash you so you believe that to be true if you wanted to. So things like that cannot necessarily be provided or could be provided in some kind of limited form. But for a lot of the ones, a lot of the more basic needs, we should be able to supply those more easily. Now, that seems to depend upon humans having some sort of widespread sense of compassion, like they really want to take care of one another. Do you think that that is appearing on Earth? I think that humans have always been pretty compassionate compared to everything else on the planet. But at the same time, um, that does not necessarily exist as a requirement. Um, there are many different ways to look at altruistic behavior. Some would say it doesn't even exist at all, that there is no such thing as genuine altruism because you might do someone a favor because it makes you feel better. Whichever the case might be, any system that's not ethical is not going to exist very long anyway. Uh, compassion is kind of a fundamental thing for any society to exist in some fashion. You need something like empathy or a reason why you work with other people and a reason why you're aware of their needs because you can't really work with other people well if you're not aware of what they want, what they need, what they desire. And that kind of tends to come hand in hand with the concept of compassion as we would have it. But at the same time, you don't necessarily require that to have a system of exchange or cooperation. Uh, you could have something that was much more cutthroat, but still actually sovereignly well provided for. And those are the individual challenges a civilization has to decide what they want to do with. I don't that's one of those things we can say that it doesn't work if you do A, B, or C, but rather you've got A, B, C, and D as options, and each one has a different challenge if you want to make it work. And in our probability, you would see variations of all of those popping up at some place and time. Universe is huge. Hmm. I like that you see compassion as practical in that sense. That's really interesting. Well, if you think of it as an evolved trait, it must serve some kind of purpose. <laughs> so if you're a social creature who exists principally for the purpose of, uh, if you, what is the major source of competition or threat to any human, uh, other humans, right? What's the major source of gain to other humans, other humans? We have a whole world around us of dangers and available options, but for the most part, we interact with other people. So to a degree, that has been a necessary component of, of things. But uh, as the basic ethics of it, I do tend to feel there's a fundamental right and wrong, and I think compassion is a very important part of that fundamental right. So, But your mileage may vary. I'm surprised by the fact that you don't have a very dystopian perspective on humans. Most of the people we talk to are 
pretty down in the dumps about how things are going on Earth, but you seem to have a lot of hope. I think that, you know, in any given generation, there's always new challenges. And if you look at it historically, um, for at least for the last century or so, you've always had a large number of people who have felt that the world was about to come to an end. And um, I think that in some times you'd be kind of careful there because there's always things to feel a little bit dismal or depressed over. But a lot of times the reason why they think that everything is getting ready to come to an end isn't because they think that they themselves are stupid or even anything else like that. It's that they tend to look around at their fellow man and say, most people I know are morons and they don't care about anyone else but themselves. And I think that that's, that's what gives them that pessimistic belief is that that's what they're seeing. I don't generally look around my fellow human beings and see them as stupid or moronic. Or rather, I should say, say some people think 90% of the population is stupid or moronic. I say it's 100% of the population, and we all forget what time of day it is. Sometimes we're all morons. Uh, sometimes we're all you know, lacking compassion. But I've never met anybody who didn't have the occasional good idea or who didn't have some good thing that they did on, you know, that they were focused on. And a lot of times what people are missing there is that they're just not approaching the same problems. They have other things going on they're looking at and say, why don't you care about this issue? And the person says, well, I do not particularly care about that issue as much. I have these other ones I care about. Why don't you care about them? You all focused on saving this forest. I'm all focused on trying to get these folks fed at the soup kitchen. And that person over there is, is focused on trying to teach kids science. And that one over there thinks it's very important that we get more music out in people's lives, bring them joy. We all have our focuses and they don't always align well. But when I meet and talk to individual people, I very rarely find anything to be pessimistic about about that person. So I see it probably generalizes to everybody else too. <laughs> but do you have the same faith in systems? as you do in people? Because this seems to be the point of frustration for many, which is that you run into people and they seem fundamentally good and decent and well-meaning. But for some reason, the systems on Earth tend to be... Do you mean institutions, Quinn? Institutions and structures. These large things, they're kind of, they have emergent properties, right? Yes, it's and like that's actually a very good point to take on. They're almost a hive mind sometimes. Yeah. You can have an organization that has no conscious mind itself, but it has its own personality to it uh, because everyone who's involved with it is focused on that particular thing, or at least when they're interacting with that group, they are. Um, we have a lot of corporations, and I use that term not just to mean for-profit corporations, but all incorporated entities, be it a village, be it a church group, be it a local soccer club. These corporate entities have their own personalities and goals. Um, and in the future, they might actually have genuine personalities and goals that they had safe in artificial intelligence that was running things. But at the same time, um, I don't think that we, as individuals, we find problems with other individuals, uh, but we tend to interact with large groups of each other to get things done. So we want to get a pyramid built, you need 20,000 people willing to focus on building that pyramid. You want to get a spacecraft on the ground, you need millions of folks working on doing that. And when they're focused on that, it can often cause them to miss other things that are important or not seem to care about things. At the same time, you can also get, get corruption or damage inside that system when some of the folks running it aren't really focused on that same end goal anymore. Mm -hmm. um, or at least it's not their highest priority. So yeah, groups and institutions can always be a source of a problem, but you have to rely on the individual people to be able to fix those problems. And so I, I never really think of, you know, a, 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 corporate entity that has no mind of its own can't really have committed anything wrong or be wrong. It's the people involved in it, their chart or their approach, that's the thing that is wrong. Um, and so you really can't have an institution doing 
damage because it has no personality to do it with as its individual sense. So it's always one of those cases where we generalize with institutions. We have to generalize when we talk about an institution, but in that generalization is not to where we're making a mistake because that institution does not actually have a personality as, as an individual mind. It's all the people involved that do. So if it's misbehaving, you have to get to those individual people and ask them, can you alter it this way? So, well, sorry, go ahead. So how does it become that if individual people are generally good, why are there so many broken institutions on earth? Then? Like what happens in that hive mind? Are they broken? I mean, ah. that's a, that's kind of an important question to be bringing up. Um, you know, there are more people alive living a better standard of living than have ever existed in the past. And there are lots of problems, lots of injustices, although these cannot be relative concepts, lots of issues. Right? We all agree on that. But how does it stack up to a century ago? How does it stack up to two centuries ago? Are they really broken or are they state of repair? Some are broken or being replaced, fixed, repaired, upgraded. Some are taking their time to die off when they should be replaced. Some probably need to be revived in some cases too. But whichever the case is, when we are judging this, we say there are so many problems going on nowadays, so the future looks bleak compared to the past. You know, that's always the question. When was the last time someone died of polio? Um, you know, when was the last time people died from some abstract illness that we, we've had on the books for, you know, centuries and has been wiping people out by the thousands or millions in previous generations, but now is an anomaly when we find it at all. Uh, the average lifespan has continued to rise with an occasional bump or statistical noise, but it's continued to rise. The standard of living has continued to rise. The overall satisfaction with life, that might be a little bit more debatable, though, because we say maybe stress levels have risen, too. But these are things that we have to constantly be kind of managing and improving on, too. There are so many challenges ahead, but let us never forget how many challenges we've already overcome. You know? And so we say all these organizations are broken compared to what? Are we going to compare them to any number of the corrupt uh, kingdoms, nations, governments of a few centuries ago? Or are we comparing them now? And we say, well, your hospital systems aren't whether they're as good as they should be. They could be improved. So certainly how they stack up to the ones from two centuries ago. And we look around and we just see so much progress that we've made, but we tend to ignore it. It's in the background. It's noise. And it's good to focus on the problems for the future, but you should never overlook the previous accomplishments. Why do you think that it's so difficult for people in general to parse the signal from the noise in these cases? Well, I think it has to do with ecology. I mean, I, I think that what you said about the fact that standard of living is much higher and healthcare and all of these other things, certainly they're better. I think that what people are worried about right now is the planet itself. I think that that's a concern that has never really been on people's minds at any time in history before. Not at all. No, that's, um, you know, even back in the days of the early canals, we were engaging in geoengineering as long back as we have written records because those written records didn't start popping up to we had those dense populations along the river valleys. They've always had concerns about things like deforestation, land management, water conservation. They were very big deals and they've often approached them in amazing ways. You know, the, uh, dikes that we built up along things, artificial islands, uh, roadways, canals, giant canals, irrigating entire nations. These are things we've done before we even started using the court and calendar. This is not a new thing. The idea of localized man management has obviously had to expand as we've gotten to see more of the war and more of the complexity. 
But at the same time, they always were very focused on land management, especially given how focused they were on agricultural. So we want to be kind of careful in assuming that these aren't new problems. It's the same for so many of our ethical problems that derive from technology. So often, while the specific method is different, it's not a new issue. You know, we might use the example of a love potion. Say, what would we do if science suddenly came with a technology that allowed you to brainwash people into loving you? And I say, how is that one bit different than the people in the past, ethically, who thought they had <clears throat> some sort of witchcraft-based love potion that would change someone's mind and make them fall in love with them? The only difference is that it probably did not actually work. <laughs> so these are ethical issues we've had before. A lot of times, you know, cybernetics, genetics, mind augmentation, new in specifics, but not new as concepts. And we just have to kind of look to what we've previously had in terms of solutions or problems and ask, we want to use the same solution or something adapted, or maybe the solution wasn't such a good one. But as with things like ecology, we've always had to have a big concern about that. This is not something unique to modern times. Um, this is not something that we've ever had an absence of. Every hunter-gatherer civilization, every early agrarian civilization, and every one that's been more complicated has had to deal with these problems. It's usually been the biggest thing on their mind. So there was certainly indigenous land management, but I think what Quinn was getting at was these more toxic externalities that have been exacerbated by the exponential rise in technology. Everything from you know, global distillation effects with pesticides to uh, accumulation of petroleum pro uh, waste products in the oceans. Or even something as simple as, let's say, the global fashion industry, where there's tons of dyes and chemicals that get put into rivers that far surpasses the scale of anything that happened in a hunter-gatherer society. And I think it's, about, it's, it's all about scale here, really. Scale. And then you nailed it on the head. It's all about scale. You can't really have a lot of global phenomenon and problems when you're not even aware that you live on a globe, yeah. or at least you have no idea how big that globe is. But they certainly had all sorts of issues with wild toxicity in previous cultures, probably even from the dyes. Uh, you know, they often used to think mercury is the best thing in the world to work with, you know, <laughs> so... Um, and it takes time to learn all those things, but a lot of times it really is scale. Uh, we have the ability to build things so much vaster in scale uh, than we used to, while at the same time, our capacity for intricacy, uh, specialization, and, and just kind of the ability to do things at a very small and precise scale has also risen. So on the one hand, it's a much bigger area to work with, and you have so much more to work with. On the other hand, you can also get much more into those little fine details. And that might be the reason for so much of the additional stress is we have so much a bigger idea how big everything is mm. and also how much detail there is in every single drop. You know, when we look at the painting, it's no longer a small one on the wall where the dots are very tiny. We now can look into almost the atomic level on that painting while at the same time that painting covers a football field. You know, so. Mm -hmm. But as the problems we're having now, they are different. They are bigger in many ways too. But at the same time, they have the same fundamental thing going for them. They are solvable. And in many ways, the problem is that so many of the solutions are not things that people can easily understand personally without specializing in it. And they really can't anymore because everything is such a complex supply chain. You cannot know everything there is know about any one given field anymore, let alone everything that's involved in one major project. So I think that causes it to often feel like it's overwhelming. Whereas something like a canal to bring some new water into the town, everybody can get that. Mm -hmm. hmm. So speaking of scale, 
I hear that you work in the democratic system. You're working on part of the election structures. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges to making democracy function on a large scale? Because obviously there's more humans now than there ever have been. In a world that's approaching what I think they said it's going to be 8 billion by 2023 yeah. um, and um, 350,000 people in the United States. We're still waiting on the next census. I work in the election system for Ohio, uh, one of the bigger states, but uh, one that's um, fortunately always put a big emphasis on trying to make sure the elections are very transparent and uh, accommodating to the population. <clears throat> this year has been a big challenge because we have so many shifts from the COVID threat as well as from as every time we have a presidential election, there's a big new focus and new changes. Every four years, there's no repetition because technology and society change so much in mm. just four years. So what we've mostly been trying to do um, where we can locally is increase the number of options available to people to vote to make it easier for them to get registered, to get their ballot in, um, but at the same time to do that in a very controlled fashion because you want to maximize people's opportunities to do it while maximizing the trust and security of the system. And so you very carefully add options where you can that do the most uh, good for the minimum disruption and with the maximum security on it. So we faced, uh, prior to the virus, we were very worried about cybersecurity, elections being hacked, as well as the perception they might be hacked. One of our biggest concerns was that most boards of election have like a Facebook page or Twitter account they now use to let the public know what's going on. This, of course, is in no way tied into their election system. It's just where they post news at. And usually mm-hmm. security was very weak on that. Someone could hack that, say something about how the election was going bad, and everyone would assume that, oh, no, everything's getting thrown into chaos, when all they did was just hack a minor page that occasionally updated. Um, those are the little things you have to worry about because there's that perception and trust issue, and you have to focus on that. And of course, the best way to have a system people trust is to have a system that is trustworthy. Right, and it's really interesting that in addition to the structures side of the election that you're working on, there's this idea that democracy requires individuals to have information readily available so they can make decisions. Otherwise, there's no real stability in that decision-making. Sure. Uh, there was one of those examples that we often add as, as a requirement for a true post-scarcity civilization is they have to have a lack of scarcity of information. Mm. And the information has to be valid and true. But of course, there's always that question of how do you how do you even confirm the information you're giving out is true if everyone's a good actor? And of course, there are always people who are not good actors, or at least they are being deceptive for what they think is a good reason. They might think they are lying for a good cause or simplifying things for a good cause. So trying to give everyone access to fair and honest and open information is not just a question of, of actually making sure they only get honest information, which is not something you're ever going to be too successful with but also making sure the importance, priority, and framing of that information is honest and fair. Well, a lot Um, of the information comes from institutions right now, right? Like news agencies or even even influencers. What's amazing about nowadays is how individuals, small groups, or one or two people, or even just one person by themselves, can become a source of information in a a purely international way. Um, I start off with very modest intentions of just letting a few authors know how to better write their stories realistically. And with that, and it was a couple of years before I had any volunteers or help on the show at all. And until then, it was a one-man show, but it got out to millions. 
um, that is a new thing that we haven't had for a long time, or at least haven't had to the same degree. Authors could often write a book, but they'd go to a big publishing house and get printed. So in some ways, that's as it should be, because they're all a billion of us. You know, everyone's got a voice that everyone hears, then it's nothing but a cacophony. You want some filtration. On the other hand, we want to make sure that that filtration system is not biased to prevent people being able to get good information out there based on what this or that group says is good. So you want that diversity of assets of both how the information is conveyed and who decides what should be out there. But at the same time, we have more options for that than we ever had before. Hmm. So it is in some ways a self-correcting problem. In some ways, but this kind of comes back to what you were saying about artificial intelligence and the development of various computer capabilities on Earth. What happens when information starts being put out there that isn't trustworthy in any way, shape, or form? I keep hearing people talk about deep fakes. I think, and this is the question of how do you manage to verify that information? It could be tricky. You have examples like the brain of that scenario or simulation hypothesis for extreme examples of that kind of deception. I would say one of the things you you have to always resist the urge to do, because in some ways it's an even bigger threat than the, these fake things out there, is that you have to resist the urge to control and regulate who decides what is true enough to put out there. To some degree, that might be necessary, but at the same time, if you have that, that often becomes the greater threat, because now you create an institutional organization or group that has the ability to decide what is truth. And while they may have the best intentions, and probably do to start off with, there is an old joke about institutions tend to get corrupt with time, and uh, that you know is is been something we often face. So you always want to be kind of careful regulating the flow of information. And uh, I would say, um, was the the old thing is it's better that uh, ten guilty men go free than one innocent man be uh, falsely imprisoned. One might say that it's better that 10 lies go unchallenged than one truth be suppressed. Um, but at the same time, we do need some way of verifying information. But it's very dangerous to start saying, and you will be in charge of verifying that information. Totally. And that seems to be the case in a lot of, especially academic structures. Can you imagine any alternatives to existing mechanisms like peer review or... Yeah. There's a joke about democracy that says that uh, democracy is is a horrible form of government. It just happens to be better than anything else we've done before. And we have to say the same thing about peer review. Peer review is an awful way of determining the truth. It's just less awful than the alternatives we've tried. Um, <laughs> you know, peer review is subject to all sorts of things in terms of both prioritization of how the information is viewed and you know, whether or not something gets scrapped just because they're not willing to go through the edits, the effort, because they don't care about that particular author as much. They're not something powerful in the field. Um, you know, how quickly does this particular discovery even get shared because there's such a backlog and finding one willing to peer review it. These are all sorts of problems we do pop up in peer review. It's much better than almost every other method we've used before, but it still has its flaws. Have you and, heard of uh, any cool alternatives? Um, crowdsourced peer review is a popular one that's kind of coming into play. They are, you have all these experts around the world and, you know, they may not be as available to do individual peer review on what we call lower priority things, but there's a lot of lower tier exports for folks who have more free time. Maybe they're just very amateur, but very knowledgeable of the subject. You know, they're not professionally in it. That can do that basic peer review. And that's an example of how you can start taking advantage of that. 
But as to better methods, it's a lot like democracy. It's very hard to think of a better replacement for it. We just know what its flaws are. Um, and it's an example where diversification of method is probably such an important thing. Um, you know, you almost always seem to have some kind of flaw, loophole, problem in any given system. One could even could joke about Quintel's uh, completeness there about that. But uh, at the same time, you have less of those when you have that diversification. When you have those checks, balances, and alternatives available, even if one system is a little bit better than others for some things, that's often good to have them. Let's say you've got five types of power, solar, wind, water, fusion, etc., and one of them is the cheapest. It is literally half the price of the most expensive of those alternatives if the ends all fall in the middle. Uh, you still want to use all five. Maybe hmm. you use one mostly, but you want to have all five available. In some places, it's just natural tendency these things to be a little bit better for a given niche, but it also means you have less of a jugular vein. And that's usually with a big system, the most important thing to avoid is having a jugular vein because big systems can be brought down by one tiny little weakness like as uh, the sci-fi example of the Death Star and having to have a vent. You joke, why would you have a vent like that? So if you have to have a thermal <laughs> vent on something to do that much energy, you have to find some way to cap that off so it's not so vulnerable, but it needs to be there. A system has to have a way to get things in and out. So it has to have these arteries and blood vessels, but you don't necessarily need to have one single jugular vein, one single pumping heart. Diversification, generally speaking, gives advantage and often tends to be the source of much more innovation and competition to more innovation as well. This mm. kind of comes back to something you were talking about earlier, where you were mentioning artificial intelligence and the sort of the promise that it holds, mm -hmm. but also mentioned that it needs to be handled by a human. You know, there has to be somebody around who's sort of manning it. Is it possible to use artificial intelligence to design systems that would prevent this sort of jugular vein organization? Quite possibly. I mean, the, the fundamental thing about artificial intelligence is that it's intelligence. So anytime you can, and you know, anytime the question is, could we ever solve this by thinking about it? And if the answer is yes, then, then yes, artificial <laughs> intelligence might be applied to that. The, the trick that we always have to keep in mind with artificial intelligence is that two things is the first, just because it's much smarter, does not mean it's a generalized intelligence. We are fairly generalized intelligence. This thing might be much smarter at certain things, but have no personality, for instance. We don't want to assume just because it processes a certain speed that it's reached a human level of, of intelligence or, and, and so on. The other thing to remember, though, is if it has, if it is a generalized intelligence, you can call it an artificial intelligence at that point, but it's a person. And say, well, if we're going to start calling things artificial intelligence that way, we already know what the most artificial intelligence on, on the planet is, and it's humans. We are very artificial. Hmm. We're the, the most artificial thing on this planet. We are created, born, manufactured by our families and our societies for decades before we get uh, to the point that we all consider educated not to be involved. And so we have to kind of keep that in mind for artificial intelligence of the program machine variety is that fundamentally, it's probably not going to be all that much different than the human is if we're building it to solve human problems. But if it's a specialized thing, then it's just one more machine that we might find useful, no different fundamentally than an electronic loom or similar. Do you think that the sort of indistinguishable from human intelligence in a computer is possible? Sure. Um, whether or not it be a Turing test compliant thing, that's probably the, 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 one of the things we'd be looking to solve first is uh, 
well, it's a good thing that you want it to be indistinguishable from human customer service. Customer mm. service is horrible these days because people don't like interacting with the machines and they've been doing a lot of work on that. That's one of those first things you work for. It's something that's Turing test compliant for whatever medium it's on. But we want to also be kind of careful is we don't necessarily mean indistinguishable from human when we say it's a person. Just because it is a person does not mean it's human-like. You know, a cat or, or a dog, you might argue whether or not they're a person or a dolphin or a elephant, but there's a personality there and it's not very human. Uh, given artificial intelligence might not be very human in its behavior. Uh, if it's designed for fixing specifically human problems, then it probably does have a lot of parallels to that. But if it's designed for solving a specific problem, then it probably has a personality very based around that. And uh, you know, if your goal is to just uh, mine steel from some asteroid, that's its primary goal. It's going to have a personality that's developed around that. Whereas if it's something that's being created as a generalized intelligence for solving problems like a human has, then it probably has a much more human behavior and might even be based off code that's taken from an uploaded human mind as the basis. Do you feel like there's the possibility of ethical issues once you start developing intelligence? Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, but that is one of those examples from earlier when I said we have to ask ourselves, is this problem really any different than ones we've had before? Or is it just, you know, version eight or nine, new flavor, new skin? Um, you are creating something for a purpose. We've done this before. This is not new to us, even with people. We have built people for the purpose of filling a task. There have been whole phases of our civilization where that's what we did. We try to move away from that, that caste system or growing up to replace your parents or to have a specific job. It has advantages. The boy who's grown up in the blacksmith's smart for his whole life, helping his dad smart, you know, do iron, is probably much better at that than the average person. But at the same time, we found that where you have personality involved, they might want to do something else or somebody else might want to go in that profession. You could potentially build a machine that really loves doing its job, but you probably would want to build it with just the inclination as opposed to being task specific. Mm. Um, and that would be one of those examples of you, know, you can encourage people to go into the family trade, but you leave them the option to go to something else. That would be an example of how we've challenged and dealt with that ethical issue before. But there are so many of them. Um, you know, They are not necessarily new problems, just new flavors. So... As humans start, you guys are starting to leave the planet, actually, we noticed. That's kind of what got us involved in this whole conversation with your species in the first place. What, what sort of challenges are you going to face? Let me, let me back this up. What, what will Earth look like once you guys are able to begin moving your industry into outer space? Hmm. What's the role of Earth in a multi-planet species? That's a good question. Um, there is a tendency to think that if we could just do all of our industry up in space, then we could return Earth in a very pristine place. This is probably backwards. Um, people are already on them. If you want to preserve something in nature, your big goal is to prevent invasive species from getting to it or prevent people from messing around with it. There's already people on this planet. You're not going to force them to leave. I think that ethically is very dubious. What you can do is build something like a space habitat and then put your natural preserves into those. You could build thousands of such things around the planet and have more space than the whole planet has just for those protected purposes. And they're very easily controlled and maintained separate from interference. So you could have ones whose purpose was to be the garden park people visit, you know, your, your place that is meant for people to spend a lot of time in vacation. Whereas you could have other ones that were specifically meant to be 
isolated. Where no scientists go in there except maybe as robots. And there's just that controlled environment safe from interference. As opposed to this planet, which right now is where everybody's at. And where it would be very unethical to try to make people move off of it if they didn't want to. So we say being able to build our industry in space would allow us to preserve this planet. Well, so it would, but allow us to preserve that planet by transplanting it to other locations, by preserving those individual environments, because there's nothing special about the planet. It's just a ball of rock. It's the life that we understand, those ecologies, those ecosystems, which are always in flux. We would want to be able to preserve all of that by spreading it out and putting it other places. Some places to be adapted to new worlds we'll live on, Sometimes the garden parks we might maintain for us to visit. Other times the nature preserves that are automated and meant to be not touched by anything with a brain. Only those things that oversee and maintain the facility. You give yourself more options. But as to Earth itself, its probable future is to be a place of uh, <clears throat> many large cities. Though probably fairly garden-esque cities, because that's what people tend to before. You build up, you build out. And if the whole plant gets torn into some concrete paving way, that might be okay if all the nature is already off it in nice big habitats. Or maybe you have ecologies where there's nature everywhere and you have new people. You make these decisions, but you make sure you have options to do many different options. And there's only the one planet of Earth that's unique for us. So there have to be all applicable because you're never going to have one policy applied to Earth because it's where everybody's at and where all the interests are at. That's a very fascinating perspective that we have not heard yet. I think that most people, would you say that most people would viscerally react against the idea of paving over Earth and sending all other creatures to live somewhere else? I think I probably would. Um, but, <laughs> but that's a progressive thing that happens with time if it happens at all. It's not necessarily the only way to go with that. You could, for instance, build additional layers to Earth. Uh, we only use maybe 10 meters of the plant up and down in most cases. Um, but it's, uh, it's thousands of kilometers thick. You just build additional levels under over what we call Machioska shell ward. You don't have to pave your plant over either. That's just the fact that if you did that, it doesn't mean you've lost all your nature. It just means all your nature is in orbit around you. Um, we want to maximize people's available options. There are people on the planet who do not want that to happen, and so there'll be chunks of the planet doesn't happen on. There are people who don't want it now, but in 100 years do in some spot. And then other places where they did that 100 years later, but they don't want that anymore. You will never maintain a uniform policy on Earth except by extreme force of caution. Um, therefore, trying to solve all your problems by focusing that is, is probably you know, a futile pathway when what you can instead do is simply provide all those additional options to solve the problems and pursue many of them. And that way, not force people to have to choose one way or another. Are there principles that you can look to for knowing good ideas, though? Because it seems like, okay, if the humans are going to pave over their planet, let's say, mm -hmm. there's some pretty clear negative outcomes of that. Sure. For even human survival, right? Because... You're part of an ecosystem. Whether or not you think that you're natural, you do belong to this connected web of life. Mm -hmm. and, and we just use that as an example because it's one of the classic ones in science fiction, these gigantic cities with all these big, dirty, concrete things that are filthy. Mm. And people picture that as a future for Earth. So if that was a future for Earth, it isn't necessarily the end of our ecosystem because we could have transplanted that. And of course, you can build a space station in space. You can also build a space station inside a skyscraper, uh, what we call an arcology. 
But this is not really the way that works out because you wouldn't pave over the entire planet. We don't live on the entire planet. Even if you had a trillion people on this planet, you know, you would only need to have modest skyscrapers in some places to actually fit everybody in there. You could leave the rest garden if you wanted to. You could build additional levels to plant if you want. There's no need to pave it over nor any particular reason why you would in that classic sense. We used concrete because of very good building material. That's not the only material available to us. Um, it's just the idea that even if that worst case scenario happened, you still have those other options out there. But at the same time, why would you do that is a very good point. You want an ecosystem, we're part of an ecosystem. We can change our ecosystems too. We can change how we're in it. That's the advantage of knowledge. Um, we might decide that what we really like is to have garden parks inside gigantic skyscrapers that are 10 kilometers high and can fit a billion people in them comfortably than, than any city they've ever lived in. While at the same time, we might want to leave the whole thing as empty forest. But that wouldn't be a global decision. That would be something like, for instance, what, uh, what Ontario decided to do. Well, just the south of them in, in another place, they decided they did want to do the big suburban spa. In another place, they decided they wanted to put all the cities underground. Or another, they put them all up in orbit, hanging from the sky. These things are not something that you're going to have as a global policy. And that's one of these mistakes people have to make in dealing with the future is assuming that it has to be A, B, or C, because it won't be. It probably won't be any of those options specifically anyway, but it won't be any single one of them. And if you try to force it to be one of those options, that would generally where things turn out badly. So it might be that uh, England is paved over while France is nothing but vineyards and garden parks, or much more locally concerned too. We are a complex ecosystem socially as well. When we try to standardize how we act, how our groups are, how our people are, that tends to be where you get problems because you're going for a monoculture then, and that never works out very well. <laughs> so it sounds like you see a diversity of states and governances and ideas and peoples in the future and not this overarching global government empire sort of thing. It's an oversimplification. It's never really happened. Even we talk about great empires like... Uh, like England had a century ago, or what uh, Genghis Khan and, uh, and the Mongol hordes had, they were never very stably one thing all over the place. It would change from hamlet to hamlet, from town to town. You have a billion people with a billion interactions, and those are only going to grow more with time. One-size-fits-all solutions generally do not work well, and they generally are the biggest threat to those who tend to be focused on the future, whether it's policy, sci-fi, science, whatever it is, is that desire to have a, a, a one biome planet as it were, or it never will be. You know, you're not going to have a policy in one place that's identical to in another. Why should you want to? That's a standardized civilization. It's a monoculture. Um, it's also very improbable if you did think that was advantageous. So we plan around making sure the options are good and numerous. But certainly the economies on Earth are more intertwined than ever before. And, and awareness, internet. I mean, Genghis Khan didn't have the internet as did Genghis Khan have the internet? I don't I think, think so. I think he was before the I can't internet. remember. Uh, they are more intertwined, but, you know, we say, well, they're more intertwined, but so is a bigger ecosystem, and yet it has more diversity to it, too. A small ecosystem tends to be closer to a monoculture because it can't afford too many different variations, not as many mm. niches. 
with this big system with more connection, we actually have more niches, more diversification. So yes, we are far more diverse than we used to be. But then again, a century or two ago, whether you lived uh, in Eastern Asia or South America or any other part of the world, odds were we knew which job was and your lifestyle was. It was farmer or it was hunter-gatherer. And there was divorce even there. It's not like I've been following the same things or you know, it hunt the same things. But at the same time, that was a very narrow bracket that described the vast majority of the population anywhere on the planet or any period of time on the planet. And that's not true anymore. And that's the case now. We have many things that get standardized or flatlined because they're better or because they're more popular for a time. They change with time too. But at the same time, for everything that gets streamlined, smoothed, or replaced by this or that thing that's seen as better across the board, we have a thousand other things where it's changed into a, a, a giant template and spectrum of options. So it's interesting that you say that as an ecosystem grows or as any group grows, it's able to move away from monoculture. Because it seems like there is this feeling on Earth that the window of allowable solutions to problems is narrowing in some sense. Do you know what I mean? Um, right? I think that people would often feel like their options are narrowing while at the same time they're often expanding. One thing to remember about an ecosystem is you can often have something become very dominant for a while. Now, suddenly this one new thing pops up because you know changing dynamic systems and it's all over the place. But in time, either something else comes to replace it a bit more or that thing itself spreads out into multiple types. Um, it's not unusual for something to get very dominant and, and, and controlling inside an ecosystem for a while. Um, that kind of thing can happen with us too. You know, the importance of the smartphone, you know, that's the very dominant aspect of our civilization, but that's diversifying off too. Um, communication, very important. It allows the spread of ideas. When those ideas spread, people find ones they think are good. And if one of them is something that almost everyone agrees is really much better, then that's the one they go with. Some will not. Some will find minor variations that they perform more, that are better suited to them, or that they feel are better suited for them. And that's how that diversification happens again. So there's a constantly a process of standardization and diversification. They're not in contradiction to each other. Um, but as to people feeling like their options are more limited, it's something we might want to keep in mind is that's not one, that's not necessarily true, just because they feel that's the case. But two, mm-hmm. at the same time, maybe it's just that they are more aware of all the problems and they're only being transmitted about the set number of solutions because some are much easier to convey or have gained more notion to be discussed. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you ever have a problem where it's A or B. And if you're looking at a thing, you're sort it's you got A or B, it probably means that you're not actually taking the time to look at all the solutions available. Mm. So, I love that. Do you think that for accomplishing that, sort of ability to look beyond A and B, that you have to have more people that are going into engineering and technology and building with this desire to create alternative solutions. Because it seems like many people on Earth right now who work with computers work on software, not necessarily hardware. Oh, yeah. Well, software is often the way you generate solutions to problems is those algorithms. But 
no society is ever going to find that it has a surplus of problem solvers, whatever the form that problem solving mm. takes, which may be engineering, it may be science, it may be medicine, it may be software programming, it may be teaching at the local school, it may be the guy who picks up your garbage every day and has figured out the problem of how to deal with a better influx of it down the road. There is problem solving being done at every level of civilization. We will never have too many problem solvers uh, unless we run out of problems, in which case I'm sure that would be the new problem is coming up with some problems for us <laughs> to occupy with. Um, the post-scarcity of problems. Yes, and that could be one of those issues that comes up. Um, but if you're a clever enough society that's good at solving problems, you can probably solve that problem too, one could hope. Um, but a society always has more problems. We have more problems than any civilization in the past. Why? We're more aware of them. And of course, most problems come from people. The more people you have, the more problems you have. The smarter they are, the better resource they are, the more widespread they are, the more problems they create. That's, as we say, the most important part of a human civilization and the ecosystem that is humanity all by itself is that most of our problems and most of our benefits come from other humans. So as we get more people, and more connection between those people were not isolated, you get more problems and you get more solutions too. It's just kind of how it goes hand in hand. The trick is not to stress out about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that the education systems on earth are becoming reoriented towards this problem-based learning as opposed to knowledge-based learning? Oh, uh, you have to ask my wife on that one better. She's the education expert in the family. Um, mm, but call her uh, in. <laughs> <laughs> she's cops on the side of. But um, I would say that they're trying to. How well they're succeeding is going to vary a lot from place to place. The fundamental issue with education is always trying to get that core learning in there, and most of all, that enthusiasm for learning, and to try to make sure it's not too narrow a focus. Just because your child takes a great interest in history and you should be glad now they're taking a great interest in history or engineering, you mustn't let yourself let them just do that. They need to not be a specialized insect. They need to know the value of those other areas, knowledge. Um, but at the same time, the biggest thing we have to do is just let people have enthusiasm for knowledge. That's the one to learn how to do. And every teacher knows that and what does what they can to improve that, but we'll have missed success, mixed success overall. Maybe one of those software apps down the road will be one of those things that can scan kids' eyebrows or body temperature, see if they're interested in the material they're reading. And if they're not, they can represent that information from a slightly different perspective, slightly different window, or slightly different focus so that the kid finds it more interesting. Just keep trying those till it builds a good template. Wow. And uh, that might be one of those big things to help us find out, you know, how to better educate people. Maybe we'll just get better at educating people to be good educators. But mm. fundamentally, you know, I think our education system is improving overall, but obviously has a lot of work to be done too. That seems the case for most systems on earth right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have a genuine decay in an area where it needs to prove. Sometimes you have some leaps and bounds. It's but. By and large, most of the systems are better than they used to be if they even existed with an analogy in the past. I like looking at these systems as having a natural sort of cycle of decay. It's like the forest also needs to be turned over in order for new things to grow up into it. It is a problem. You get what we just say, bureaucratic inertia, administrative growth. Uh, and uh, that can happen to anything. It's not limited to government projects or big corporations. It can happen in a family business, even something small, or even a local club. It just kind of gets stuck in its ways and needs that prod. Um, and uh, that is not necessarily inevitable, but it does tend to see, it does seem to happen that way. 
So you do need that constant change. And that, that is the nature of ecosystems, whether we're talking in an economic sense or we're talking in the classic ecological one. They are complex systems that grow, fossilize, spring new shoots, break in half, grow new ones. And you do your best to kind of manage it as you can, recognizing that it's always like trying to manage a hurricane to some degree too. Is there something that you aren't moderately optimistic about? You seem You're sort of like the least misanthropic human we've ever talked to. So. <laughs> yeah, most of them seem like they're really down in the dump. Um, I guess, you know, you, you make choices in life. Um, my full sergeant once joked uh, that the first time they dropped a mortar on the place I was sleeping at or shot at me, I, I'd suddenly feel much more relaxed in life. And he was correct at the time. Um, <laughs> when you, you choose whether or not to look whether the glass is half full or half empty. And of course, sometimes you say now, well, I don't know if the glass is half full or half empty. How I kind of go find myself a gigantic cake or tank of the stuff somewhere instead. Um, you you choose whether or not to be optimistic about things, not by being ignorant or naive, but by looking around and saying, here are all these problems we have solved so far. Here is the overall morality that people involved. They seem to mostly want to do what's right and what's good, not without exception, obviously. If you're looking from that perspective, you know you've got a good team and a huge team. You know, it's a much bigger team than we had a century ago. It's four times as big. Mostly people who want to do good things, not across the board, not without exception for any of us. We all have our bad days um, and have more resources available than to any other time in the past. So you just choose to assume, do all problems have solutions? We don't know. I choose to assume they do. If that's the case, then you constantly work to improve that team of problem solvers get them more resources, get them more numerous, get them more skilled. And if that's the case, every problem will eventually get itself solved. Not always in an ideal timeline, not always in the best way, and not always without accents. But if you're taking that perspective that every problem does have a solution, um, you know, or that if it doesn't, then there's really no point to worry about it. It can't be a problem if it doesn't have a solution, even it's going to crush you, right? Um, if you take that perspective, it's a lot easier to look around at the world and say, well, we're getting there. And, and every new crisis is an opportunity for some things too. This last year has been very hard for a lot of people, but we have seen amazing innovation in so many things, We've seen amazing progress in so many things. I, I, we were saying in the state of Ohio, uh, the other side of the Secretary of State's office here is they do elections, but they also do business. We obviously had a lot of unemployment. We had record numbers of new businesses being started. Hmm. Record numbers, more than at any other year before. Wow. That you don't hear that on the news too often. You don't hear that on the news too much, but it's there. Of course, you have records numbers of them closing. You have records of unemployment, but you do have that record number of new things. So there was, maybe it's a silver lining, maybe it's the bright saying at the end, there was innovation going on. There is new innovation opportunities going on. And I doubt that's unique to Ohio. We are adaptive. Crises pop up, we try to solve them. That's what intelligence does. And how we solve them is more of a principle and character thing. So if you're going at these things from good character, good principles, a desire for reason to find good things and improvements, then you will succeed. It may involve a lot of crashes along the ways, but it, it will eventually get there. And do you believe that you'll sort of overwhelm bad actors because there's so many people who are really just focused on making things better? Truth be told, I don't think they're really all that many bad actors. I think a lot of times they're good actors, but they are misaligned. You know, it's it's mm. say, well, what's this guy's job in this thing? And say, well, he's 
he has a different set of goals, a different priority to change. And I don't just mean that he thinks it's okay to go out and killing people. There are very few people like that. It might be that this person is a bad actor because they think that they are fighting for something that's so much more important that even if they do something inappropriate here or damaging here, that's okay. That tends to be where most of your bad actors are at. And that can be fixed by just knowledge and getting to know other people around you, knowing the ecosystem better. But yeah, there are some bad actors. How do they get to be there? How do they get to be like that? How that's not the problem to fix. How do we go about fixing that problem? And so that's just one more problem to go at. And there's a lot to be said about getting to that found destination, but sometimes the journey is as important as the destination too. I would rather live in a time where there were problems to fix than uh, that all the problems were fixed. So we just have to remember the progress we've made. And if we assume that fundamentally most people want to do what's good and right, then just keep pushing towards that, the assumption that it's worth doing. If by some chance that's not true, if most people are not good, right, and proper, or trying that in, then there's really no bad scenarios that can happen because there really wasn't anything more salvaging. I choose to assume there is. <laughs> wow. Well, I have a much better feeling about humanity after talking to you. Yeah, it might be worth Arlen. visiting after all. I think I might have to call you up after reading the news on one of these long interstellar trips. I told you not to read the news, Mickey. Nothing good in there. So hard to get solid information from Earth. So, in before we let you go, I have one more question. What do you think is the biggest problem that should be addressed first? Of all the problems, of the big pile of things that humans are dealing with, where should they put their energy? I guess the biggest one, well, there's so many of them. I don't think that you ever want to focus on just one problem. It, it's, there's that, that temptation, again, to say this is the biggest problem facing us. That, in some ways, tends to be the problem itself because mm. there are a hundred things. So we can walk and shoot bubblegum at the same time, and we need to. If you focus only on one problem, you'll fail to develop the other ones too. There is no one most important problem. And if you blind yourself by looking at just that one problem, you get somebody blindsided off the side and, and, and hit by somebody else. Um, <laughs> there are many of them, and some of them are higher priorities than others, but there is no one single thing that I could point to and say, if we could just fix that, we'll be good. Nor is there anything I could just point to and say, yeah, that it has to be where we throw all of our resources at. There are so many of them that are, if not equal, real close together. So I could never tell you what is the highest problem. Do you think humans should just listen to their own personal interests then and their own particular sensibilities and work outward like that? Uh, I think you need to balance it. You know, you've got you've to keep in mind what you have to be the source of your own ethics in the sense of you're your only gauge for what's deciding what's important. You know, but at the same time, you need to make sure that you've got that good core of what, is, what does matter to you, right? Um, if you're coming out and saying what's most important to me is X, then you judge the society to say, does this actually make sense? Does this something that everybody else approves of too? But you fundamentally are always on your own to decide what is the most ethical, what is the highest priority for you. And a lot of times the best thing you can do for society is to pursue that thing that you think is most important to society because that's where your enthusiasm lies and that's what you're best at. And we are a specialist society. And we have to keep that in mind. We say, I wish more people cared about this problem that's so important to me, is to remember that it's not necessarily they don't. Maybe you should be getting out there and spreading more awareness, but that maybe it's because they're really focused on other problems that are really important to them and all just as important. Amazing. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Mr. Arthur. You've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for coming by for a visit. It was our pleasure. Have a wonderful evening. You too. Hopefully we'll see you when we get to Earth. Bye. Bye.